0: Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. It's hard to imagine that less than two weeks ago, the call to defund the police would have been unthinkable and hopelessly utopian. Now, after the public lynching of George Floyd on May 25th, that demand defunding the police is part of the national conversation. Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles has said he'll redirect $250 million from the LAPD police, that is, to jobs, health, and other programs supporting communities of color. Just a week ago, that would have been unthinkable before demonstrators marched to his house with one central demand defund the police. And the Minneapolis City Council is considering disbanding the police and starting over. And after the last week of what many are calling police riots, backed by the National Guard, Trump has threatened to bring the military to the streets And some of the military top brass are declining this intervention. We're fortunate to be able to spend the hour with Philip McHarris, a PhD candidate at Yale who's written widely on the questions of policing, mass incarceration, housing, and he has innovative ideas for reform. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Well, I'm very pleased to have Phil McHarris with us. He's a writer and Ph.D. candidate in sociology and African-American studies at Yale University. His research focuses on race, housing, policing, and mass incarceration. And you can read his recent pieces in the New York Times and Washington Post. The one in the New York Times was May 30th. It's called No More Money for the Police In the Washington Post. Why does the Minneapolis Police Department look like a military unit? And we're very pleased to have him with us today for the hour. Welcome, Phil.
1: Thank you.
0: In your New York Times op-ed that was, you know, barely, what, May 30th, you're spotlighting the abject failure of a hyper-liberal city like Minneapolis, uh, despite their apparent intent to make the slightest dent in the out-of-control behavior of their police over so many years. So you point out that Minneapolis has been held up as a model of progressive police reform, and the department offers procedural justice as well as trainings for implicit bias, mindfulness, de-escalation, and it embraces community policing Officer diversity, it bans warrior style policing, uses body cameras. In other words, it's got the whole panoply of the reform measures that people are calling for, including uh, early intervention systems to identify problematic officers. Obviously, that didn't happen in this case with George Floyd. Apparently, they also received training on mental health crisis intervention and they practice reconciliation. So I've just given all of that, but we know that it's been Futile, And you say that we need to shift the focus back to the root of police violence, which is the entire criminal, this is a quote, the entire criminal justice system gives police officers the power and opportunity to kill. So, you know, before I ask you just further, we should say that today we're seeing demonstrations and protests across the breadth of the United States, small towns, larger towns, big cities. And it also traveled all over Europe. So a nerve has been hit. And I'd like to have you begin by elaborating on this central point. How do we take that power away from the police? You start by suggesting one key is to reduce the police contact with the public, which would mean changing policies so that the police aren't in charge of responding to such incidents of substance abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, or mental health. And instead, you propose that other kinds of workers would uh, or response teams would would, uh, handle them. And you also propose taking money now allocated to the police and prisons and spending it on education, housing economic security, et cetera. So let's just ask that obvious question. If it's really an issue of shifting already existing funds away from the police and using them to the ways that you suggest would be more effective in reducing police violence, why would there be any opposition to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's multiple levels. The one I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about is Really the idea of policing and this idea that police keep people safe um, and that police are the stewards of public safety, that idea is it's relatively novel for most of the history of police. They weren't seen as this legitimate you know, apparatus that sort of provides public safety. They were largely seen as illegitimate uh, and there to enforce racial and class orders And so, you know, over time, specifically in the early 1900s, we see that there started to be a shift. One of the major shifts was that they started to adopt sort of of paramilitary structures, which they were adopting from the imperial military. Uh, There's a recent article in the American Journal of Sociology that frames it as imperial feedback that sort of police were taking from the military strategies being used in order to repress and control foreign populations and then bringing it here. To control marginalized people, you know, black folks, people of color, and you know, we know that the the history of policing begins as slave patrols, and so over time, you know, the mid early to mid 1900s, police started to go through what is called a professionalization era, in which they started to try to, in in large part, rebrand themselves as being legitimate and, and relatively free of corruption outside of a few bad apples, and this progresses over time. Meanwhile, they're enforcing Jim Crow and they're busting unions. And, you know, they're uh, engaging in policing with folks who immigrated here. And really in the mid-century, 1950s, and then really 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson passes this Law Enforcement Assistance Act. In his language is where the police officer is a frontline soldier in the war on crime. That, that was the beginning of a federal pathway to fund policing. So that and that t- t- continued over time and the local and, and state structures followed suit and began to fund more and more, fund policing and give them more power as well as the Supreme Court. Basically, there was this like effort to, all right, we need to empower the police more and more and more and across the board, including funding. So decades go on and you know, police continue to get funded at the expense of things like schools and healthcare and hospitals. Mm-hmm. And really, it's not only in resources, it's the idea that police are incapable of, of creating public safety and that they're legitimate. So that is one of the major ideas that when you say defund the police, reimagine an entire system, people say, well, you don't care about safety, then you don't want safe communities. And really, that's, that's not the matter. And then the police have also been able to, to achieve power politically with unions and just the size and strength of departments that they also create effects with uh, elected officials and people they you know, in many ways to get the approval and to get to make sure that police unions and police departments are on board with you, they clamor it to, to police. And it's something I wrote about in January around um, the Democratic primary and how people were talking about criminal justice reform. But not talking about slashing police budgets, because that is seen as like anti-safety.
0: Well, let me go back a few minutes, because I you know, I guess we should just maybe say that it's really hard to imagine that just two weeks ago. Uh, any of this conversation would have been unthinkable and maybe even right. thought as hopelessly utopian. But now, you know, as we've seen after the public lynching of, of George Floyd on May 25th, and then, you know, this demand defunding the police has grown. And right. it's now part of mainstream conversation. And in fact, even here in Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti has said he's going to divert t- $250 million from the police to funding community, well, healthcare public Services in the community. So I want to go back though from that because um, just to p- you know pick up on some of the things that you've just said, and that is about how in this effort to professionalize and uh, increase expenditures for the police. The focusing, you know, has been on policing and and not on um, or maybe instead of looking at what's causing this situation in the first place. And you began to mention it, which is, of course, austerity, cuts to public services, um, dismantling of the welfare state. And that's often, as you also say, not just now, but in your articles as well, that this has been led by Democrats And the point would be that for, you know, for the Democrats, this has been a way of going along with the cuts uh, while at the same time winning the support of the white working class population and even some blacks who are affected by crime. And you've just given us a very quick, uh, you know, history of that development But I guess one of the things, and I know you wrote an article, uh, an academic article, on the radical increase in funding that came through grants from the Clinton Crime Bill and later the uh, Homeland Security. And in your Washington Post article, you go back, as you just said now, to the 40s and then to the Johnson War on Crime that was then, I guess, added to and fueled by Nixon's war on drugs. And then Clinton opportunistically triangulating after Dukakis was seen as soft on crime, and we remember. George H.W. Uh, Bush's Willie Horton ad. So they went whole hog on police spending. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about that history.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that that's sort of like the, the more immediate history. You know, there's the element of the, the war on drugs, the war on crime. Often these banners become also reasons and covers to increase police funding. And then sort of the anti-Black hysteria associated with the crack cocaine epidemic and Yeah. But in terms of most recently, Democrats, in order to appeal like they were not soft on crime, really became ardent. And I mean, Biden was the architect of the Clinton crime bill. And so and he's pivoted around taking accountability for it in any meaningful way. But, you know, Democrats, and it's at the federal level, it's at the state level, it's at the city level that it became sort of commonplace to say we need to increase police spending. We need more police on these streets. That's what's gonna keep people safe. And it really became a broad sweeping idea that many people bought into. You know, i I said jokingly the other day, but it's like the biggest PR stunt of the century is police convincing people that they're legitimate.
0: Yes. I think that this is the key issue that, you know, we should explore more. And that I said as soon as I saw what happened the day after, you know, in Minneapolis. Hmm. Where you- people first of all coming out of isolation with their masks or not but breaking with the um uh, social distancing that this sure. was so important and then you saw it spread and i was jokingly saying to my family it looks like you know the police have lost legitimacy and this issue of the delegitimization of this part of the state which is spreading i think and it's this is the really incredible part so yeah i just want you to go a little deeper into this as well I can hear, maybe less so now, Biden and Clinton have certainly somewhat apologized for what they created. It got fueled when there was all this extra military hardware that was then made available to police departments, large and small. And we, what we see right now is is absolutely the word incredible. As we to, has to said, this sort of military-like force, or carabineros, would call them in Chile, uh, militarized police essentially seeing uh, peaceful protesters as enemies. But But I want to go back because in the buildup of this, we started. I started to say that there was the dismantling of the welfare state and instead of social programs, there was just more policing. And on the other hand, uh, at this point, there was more crime. And so you got a chief of police like uh, Bratton in New York and then in Los Angeles, you know, employing aggressive policing, rather broken windows. And they take credit for that bringing down uh, the crime rate. Maybe you could just comment on that.
1: There's no, I mean, evidence has shown that that was not the significant driver of the decrease in crime, and that all around the country, it's called the Great Crime Decline because it was a phenomenon that's seen all, and it's still, you know, relatively not fully explained, but it was just all over the country, regardless of what, whatever was going on with policing, crime just started to decline. And so they take credit, but the, it's one of those things, and this is a part of the whole dangerous part of data and policing in the criminal justice system, which is pivotal to justifying expansions in police funding as well, is that two people can look at the same data and interpret it in very different ways. And that's basically what police have done for, for the past few decades in order to justify funding. You know, Studies have shown that the police, they didn't usher in this great crime decline. So it was a nationwide phenomenon. But they take credit for it because they have to re-legitimize themselves and they use statistics and sort of this, the interpretation of it in order to prove why they're a public good.
0: Okay, and I was just thinking as you were saying that it's the same way that we take credit for almost anything like ending the Cold War, You know, for, for the demise of the Soviet Union when there were internal contradictions there. It's another story. But then there's also the story of, For example, why NATO is even still around. And it's that these bureaucracies once created are very difficult to dismantle. Okay, so I think you've um, kind of stated this and it goes back to then, you know, this other broader question about using policing, aggressive policing, as the awful alternative to actually having a welfare state and having jobs and the rest of it. But now we're seeing and this, you know, kind of shifts it, you know, this incredible rebellion. And it's so widespread and has, you know, widespread support. It's absolutely right. extraordinary. And it's in liberal city after liberal city and liberal politician after liberal politician are showing their willingness to support this even after just two, three weeks ago, talking about in new budgets, having even more policing. And a lot of that, of course, is because it's just been this utterly graphic, uh, well-reported brutality, not just of killings, in the killings of all this year and every year, but also the way that it's being used against demonstrators, a Mm -hmm. cause that they supposedly... Support. So, do you think this is because uh, they're calculating that in, you know, that they have to go along with this, uh, or or do you think that they're going to continue to uh, justify a large police budget, saying that we just, you know, that that's what most Americans want?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably a convergence of a few different things. I think one, it comes at a strategic time because because of the coronavirus pandemic, cities are already struggling to figure out budgeting. So I think some of it is, well, we already need to cut funds. I think, you know, it's it's a opportune political moment in that regard. I mean, I think the other piece is, is that one of the biggest things that have happened, and this has happened when we look at like decade after decade after decade, and we see sort of these moments of protest eruption in response to police violence.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: even in the 60s, the Kerner Commission reported that at least Fifty percent of the the urban rebellions were prompted by police violence, right? And so we continue to see this these cycles of police violence over and over and over again. And basically, what has come out of it are these liberal reform demands. Community policing comes out of the seventies on the heels of the urban rebellions of the sixties. And so, in many ways, you know, when when instances have happened, leaders, politicians they've gathered and they said, okay, how do we reform this? How do we fix this? And most of it has been throwing more resources and money and power at them. So it's like, okay, let's, let's give them some trainings. And, you know, what they really need is some implicit bias stuff. And, you know, well, maybe if we give them body cameras, everything will be solved. But uh-huh. now I think because of organizing and just to, just as a context of the, when I first got involved in sort of invest divest for work conversations, was in maybe 2014, 2015 with organizers and activists. And so, you know, but it was still very niche. And it was even niche up to a couple <laughs> months ago. When I wrote that piece in the Washington Post in January around yeah. slashing police budgets, it was still like, it was still a, you know, and people have been talking about it and there's been campaigns, but it wasn't a sort of like national consciousness Type of type of thing, and so I think what has happened now, the shift is that people are, people have been sort of engaged in these conversations over the past few years. People have been studying, imagining, thinking, you know, Durham Beyond Policing had a successful campaign to divert funds from policing. Liberate MKE had another successful campaign where they were able to divert uh, money from policing towards community infrastructure. This was a couple months ago in New York. They've been pushing that to decrease the $6 billion budget for, you know, for years now. And in Minneapolis, ironically, I didn't even realize, but there was a piece that I wrote in Black Youth Project, and it was about how in, it was in January, how organizers in Minneapolis with the Reclaim the Block Coalition were organizing to reduce the budget and to divert funds elsewhere but the city council and mayor refused to listen to them. So you have this, you know, it was this, this concerted effort and they did not listen. They ended up raising, they ended up increasing the money. And so it was a moment where I'm like, wait, I feel like, and I looked and I'm like, oh wow, this was Minneapolis. And so now we see that, you know, they, they're held up. The city council mayor continued to give them funds. And then now the human impact of increasing police resources and the police power leads to death, murder, violence, you know, and all of the other kinds of routine violence that, that police engage with people. But now the differences in Minneapolis on the ground, for example, they had been doing these campaigns for years. So people have already shifted, some like organized activists have already shifted away from this idea of let's reform the police to be legitimate. And so I think it's kind of like this perfect storm where now it's like people have been working, people have been, you know, in thinking about this, people have been engaged in activism, their campaigns have been happening. So this moment happened. And I think there was enough leverage and mobilization and folks sort of shifting the narrative to where it kind of it just blew up. And then it, it just it, it caught up. It's like wildfire. And now the Minneapolis City Council rather has made announcement that they're looking into the process to dismantle the entire police department and reimagine public safety.
0: Yeah, this is the most radical ever. And I I think you're right, actually, Phil, to, to start out by saying that what we've been seeing across the country has been essentially a police riot backed by the National Guard. Maybe not, you know, and I saw that just yesterday in Los Angeles trying to get to a demonstration that was completely blocked off and just such a heavily armed presence. And then on the other hand, you know, you're seeing that all over the country now, all these videos are going viral of the way the police are just out of control. And then you have this, you know president who makes this idiotic statement about, you know, being the law and order president and you'll have the military intervening in the public space and then you have the military starting to break ranks. So we're in all of this to say we're in a unique moment. But but on the other hand, you know, uh, we have it, it would say we have this promising road ahead and you have, you know, not just liberal politicians jumping on board but even like sections of reactionary capitalists like you know the nfl commissioner now of course that's seems it's got to be pretty much uh, opportunistic, you know, monetary reason. But on the other hand, he genuinely appeared to have been moved. But what you're getting, I think, is seeing that the establishment has acknowledged that the movement that we're seeing in the streets right now Mm -hmm. is doing the right thing. And that when liberal politicians have continued to repress it, the hypocrisy couldn't be more clear. And, And I know that, you know, this is just another aspect of it because i saw that your phd is looking at housing as well housing and repression and and it's not necessarily this but uh you know new york always you know talks about how wonderful it is now but it's essentially made it so uh expensive that the poor have moved out of the city and so again it's just like you know bringing up more of this class issue can you comment on all of that
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, but
0: essentially just how it's become the thing for the governing class to adopt these measures, at least verbally at the same time as, you know, touting how wonderful it is now that we've gotten rid of crime.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what a part of is happening is that one, it's it's the scope that the ways in which this has sparked the level of protest that has been, you know, you see it all over the country. I think that's one piece because governments respond to people power. So basically, and, and I think a part of the a key part of this is is that it's also not only black people in the streets. It it cuts across race, and there's a lot of folks. I would go to assume, but like probably disproportionately poor and working class folks. In addition, I think, it, but it cuts across race, and you know there's a variety of people who are now also protesting and it's like the level of size. And I also, and this is what I think is an important piece of all this is too, is that police are sort of, they're the public facing and the most common government officials that you interact with on a daily basis. And so there's some work by Vesela Weaver, for example, that sort of shows how criminal justice contact can shape your, the way that you perceive and understand the government more broadly. And so I think there's also something happening where people are sort of just seeing the broader failure of the entire sort of like the ways in which our our government and, and social structures are set up. And I think, you know, part of it is also like it's a time where the government failed to respond in an appropriate way to the coronavirus pandemic. Over 100,000 people have died. Joblessness is widespread, poverty is widespread. And that also is cutting across race as well. And so I think there's a part of this that's influenced fundamentally by the, the condition that we're in, where it's sort of just, it's, it's just case by case examples of government failure. And so I think, you know, it, that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, this is, it's about what ends up happening is police violence ends up being, it's a spark you know, but the powder keg is often shaped by other systems, right? And so it's mass incarceration. It's routine police violence, harassment, being arrested for no reason, you know, but it's also living in conditions and and situations where you don't have the resources to be able to survive and let alone thrive. And, you know, I think that it's fundamental that this is cutting across different systems because it's also, you know, fundamentally about a desire to have the resources to thrive and to not live in a context where you're subjected to violence. Detainer. You
0: know, I think these are really important points, Phil McHarris, and I and especially, you know, this issue that at the time of Occupy we saw we did see a cross section, but it was principally young white people who were fighting for their own future and shifting the conversation from, you know, the grand bargain at the time to the one of the 99 percent in inequality. Because after the crash of mm-hmm. 2007 and eight, you know, uh, Wall Street got fixed, but not Main Street. And that was incredibly important, but it wasn't as widespread, even though it was broader than anything we'd seen for a long time. And the first time that we saw people, you know, and I remark as somebody comes from the 60s generation, that people are fighting not in solidarity with others, but for themselves and their own future. And that's only gotten, you know, deeper. We saw with the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, this year, And now, especially with this, as you've just said, that this is not just uh, young blacks, but this is also young whites, Latinos, older people. And it's resonating everywhere. And I guess you could say one thing that has made it uh, so much broader is that cell phone, you know, uh, videos have democratized this. And so things that went on all the time are now seen and they spread so rapidly. And so it's impossible or maybe not impossible, it makes it more difficult uh, to cover up this everyday violence, but violence especially in the African-American community. And then you also see, you know, wanton beating up of demonstrators just, you know, with batons and using tear gas, which exacerbates the uh, coronavirus. People are coughing, all of these things. And so now it just, you know, I guess it's kind of amazing that we are where we are. And I want to move into your reforms a little bit, but. I guess just to say, what barriers do you see to this movement, you know, being able to continue and move forward and actually get to the point where some of these incredible uh, reforms that, that, you know, are already, you know, you said are being talked about and in place can become more of a reality.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important that the framing is not even reforms, it's more like transformation. We're trying to reimagine public safety, because again, I think like the, some, the reform language, like the you know the strategies that the police have already employed, becomes a way to re-legitimize and sort of okay, how do we like fix policing? But I mean, the major barriers, I mean, I think in, in short, is it's state repression in its various forms. Um, you know, there's this both from police, but also there's this there, there's police backlash, but there's also carceral black backlash. Like So in terms of the whole pipeline from protests to being criminalized to being arrested and, you know, experiencing violence to going into jails and, you know, now the in New York, for example, a judge temporarily suspended Supreme Court ruling that says that you have to be arraigned within 24 hours. And so you know, and then it's the overcharging, and then it's the president to teach a lesson, which the president very explicitly said, you know, that you have to criminalize and then teach, you know, these people a lesson to avoid this from happening in the future. And so I think, you know, really a state repression. I think that's the the, the major the major thing. And you know, the president has allowed the DEA, for example, to conduct surveillance on protesters. And has marshaled basically every federal authority and power that he can to disrupt and, and criminalize protests and protesters. And so I think, yeah, I mean, it's the it's the piece around state repression. I think a part of it too. I think with this nationwide rebellion is that one, it's I think it's a, it was a, it's been a moment of grieving because so many people have been dying. I think it's also that people don't have jobs. And so usually when you would say all right, I'm not going to go to this protest because I don't know, like I might get arrested. The police might act. I don't know. When you don't have a job, that level of hesitation might not be there to the same regard. So you might feel more sort of, all right, now I'm going, I'm going to protest. I'm going, because we're living at a time where it's like people have been isolated. And also people don't, a lot of people are jobless. And so it kind of creates a context where it's like people It's a Tuesday is for what we're going to the protest because what else are we going to do? You know, and also that that's all occurred with little federal intervention, that stipend that they gave. It's you know, we know that that is not enough. And it's that we live in the richest nation in the world. And it's allowing people to starve and go hungry and jobless with without much of course, it's going to help. It's not to say that it's not, you know, the, the stipend that happened, is not, but it's, it's not nearly enough in any regard. And we can look to Canada, you know, which implemented monthly stipends much more as, you know, as an example of a government that at least not to necessarily valorize, you know, because I'm sure folks have their issues with Canada as well, but at least to relative to the U.S. prioritizes people more than it does profit.
0: You know, you've been sort of saying, and we've both been... You know, saying that this is really a problem of the system that we live in. And, you know, beginning with the dismantling of the welfare state and then using policing instead. And I wanted to kind of take it because essentially, you know, in looking at the economic situation, which is absolutely dire, but it's much worse for African Americans. I think it's something like half of all African American males are now not working. And even as, you know, there are attempts to open up the economy and some people are being brought back into work, it's going to take years and it's going to take a lot more. And so to have these questions about the form of policing emerge now, and I think I take your point too, about people wanting to demonstrate one, because they're not constricted by, you know, the fear of losing their jobs. They're already staying at home, but they have overcome the fear of the virus and that's, or at least they've decided that the risk, is uh, less important than, than getting out there and showing, you know, yeah. that this the status quo can't go forward. So I kind of want to take it then to this other issue because, and I want you to put forward your ideas in these last minutes about, we have quite a bit of time, but about what it might look like to have the kind of reforms that you envision. But first by saying, you know, that the policing came out came about because of slave patrols and we see that most of the violence is visited, not just on the poor, but on African-American poor above all. And, and so in these reforms, you know, is it sort of saying, okay, well, this is more of a class issue now and somehow the race part of it can be less important. I mean, I'd like you to kind of explore that issue.
1: Yeah. I mean, anti-blackness the, the relationship between white supremacy capitalism and anti-blackness is foundational so you know the reason why we sort of use the term racial capitalism is because there was no way in which race and capitalism grew independently of one another in this country capitalism and racism they're 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 inextricably linked and so the ways in which black people are treated it's it's sort of the vestiges and the 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 reproduction of anti-blackness which you know insofar as capitalism became it became sort of it manifested itself within the united states context really in the in the context of looting indigenous land and enslaving black people and stealing labor when we go through time, the reason why we see the the situations, the stats, the the conditions of black people in the United States, it's fundamentally because you can't separate race and class. And so when we think about the convergence of the two, anti-blackness, you know, slavery was, you know, was, was sort of, it's foundational. And so the two are linked, right? And so, you know, There's different things that people can do, but we see that regardless of your class, if you're black, you have a level of vulnerability to police violence that it it, it, it's fundamentally based off of anti-blackness.
0: Do Um, you see, for example, I'm going to just ask a kind of devil's advocate question, because so much of this is about repressing the poor. And as you say, specifically the African-American poor. But on the other hand, now that, you know, this economic crisis, let's say that the so-called recovery that never, it was only a recovery for, you know, the financiers and, and the corporate class, more than the financiers, and certainly didn't trickle down to the rest of the population. And you're seeing a level of poverty in the United States that we haven't seen in um, in, in a long time. And we're even seeing mortality going down and not just among, you know. And and among whites, at white working class, among women, and and all of that. But I guess the question would be, would you find the same incidences of police brutality in, say, rural towns and cities that are predominantly white, that you would say in even those same towns or larger cities where they're not predominantly white?
1: Yeah, you would. not And that's why, because the the institution of policing and the ways in which police violence operates, it's there's a, you know, it's there's a reason why it's disproportionately Black people. I say that to say that police violence does not only affect Black people. I just, I'm saying that to center the ways in which it's, you know, the, the gratuitousness and the, there's a reason why we see and sort of like the, the the disproportionality of it is structured in the way that it is. But police also disproportionately kill Indigenous people, police disproportionately pol- enforce and police poor people, immigrants. And so it's it's not a it's not a matter of the way I, I framed it to begin with was just to say that it's not flat it's not just police enforce the same with every community always and you know and so but I but race and class all of these things are are linked and they're they're, they're linked in a way that if you're poor and white and you're poor and black the way that you're going to be treated by the police is fundamentally different and not just in, in instance routinely over time. But that's not the, what we're seeing now is that at these protests the cops don't care if you're black, white, latinx, and and this is why I think people Old. are yeah. yeah like this is why I think people are realizing because now the police are showing the world how they treat, you know, black people routinely. Yeah. And it's the sort of I think that's it's it's the people are seeing like, "Oh, this is policing." And so, you know, in in some ways I think again, police began as slave patrols, but they also were used to bust up unions in different parts when new white Americans came into the country before they became quote unquote white, you know, to sort of police white people, immigrants, you know, from various parts of parts of the the world. And so, you know, police have always been used as a way to maintain racial and class orders.
0: One thing that, you know, since you brought it up and it's clearly part of the roadblock to reform or to dismantling and starting over is the strength of police unions. And I see, I saw a quick headline today that the AFL-CIO is discussing whether to get rid of the police unions in the AFL-CIO. And the, we certainly saw, we saw it in New York, we see it in, in um, Minnesota, that the police union is a gigantic, you know, powerhouse and obstacle to changing absolutely anything. And and um, and we on the left, of course, have discussions about about what kind of unions you know they are that are police unions or correction officer unions what kind of a role they play since you know unions are are supposed to be about defending the interests of working people Do you, what are your views on this in terms of getting to the place you know that you're that you you want to see with police
1: yeah i mean police unions are are pose a large barrier it's definitely a large obstruction um in the ways they mobilize against Things that can can transform, yeah, and and like they you know they have resources and they also have political power, yeah, and you know they that whole that whole piece around if you're running to be a local elected official, having the backing of a, of a police union can be very beneficial, yeah. and so but the truth is is that if enough pressure is placed, city cities and elected officials and councils, then. The, the Even though they can influence power, and they, I mean, they have the power to influence, there's still, you know, leverage can be pushed in order to shift and change. But they do have resources, they do mobilize entire campaigns against different efforts, um, and they have a, a wide range of political, you know, power that local, state, federal uh, officials will sort of have the inclination to be hesitant towards alienating themselves from, from police and police unions. And so, I mean, yeah, but I think that the police union question is big and I think folks are, you know, organizing around, you know, how do we shift away from, from this?
0: So let's get in our last 10 minutes to the, uh, to the issues of the kinds of reforms that, that you and others propose and are actually organizing Around And one issue is is certainly about the money, because now we're seeing, for example, as I mentioned in Los Angeles, you know, Garcetti is saying he could really redirect 250 million. And of course, in the past, there's been a lot of, let's say, outrage over how much the city government has to spend on lawsuits, um, you know, that are payouts to families who've been victimized by the police. And I don't know who's keeping track of that uh, nationwide, but it would be great to have that kind of transparency to say out of your tax dollars, this much of it goes to bolstering the, you know, the the police who are, you know, what they call the bad apples. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And all that. So now would it be, I guess the question is, maybe you could just outline some of the ways that uh, we would use other um, response teams rather than the police. And, and do you think it, that the money that goes toward the police now would be enough to do the kinds of things that you're proposing?
1: That's a good question. I mean, so in the United States, the overall total spending on policing is $100 billion. So which is, you know, considerable. But yeah, so I think the way that I I imagine and frame and folks have been discussing it, it's it's twofold. One is defunding the police and investing in community infrastructure, social spending. So things like hospitals, schools, healthcare, employment, housing, all of the things that we know actually reduce the likelihood of folks engaging in survival economies and engaging in, in, and just on the other side, engaging in, 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 you know, ways that can create harm and violence. We know that, you know, if you reduce and eradicate if you eradicated poverty the underlying structures that give rise to people engaging in harm and violence will fundamentally drop and we know that that's based off of trolls of, of data and research and you know if you decrease those things that will make people and communities far safer than police ever will and you know and, and again police actually create a lot of unsafe Conditions in many communities, and so that's the first part. Is that you? It, it's fundamentally about restructuring like societies, and cities, and counties, and you know states, and the country in a way that prioritizes people and giving people the resources they need to thrive. That is sort of, in that that is sort of at the core, right? Is that all of this funding has gone towards in the name of public safety, but that people have been saying that this, that is not the case. That is not, you know, what this is, what is happening. So that's one piece. The second piece is, yes, it's is developing emergency response teams to deal with different sets of emergencies. And the way sort of, you know, one way to think about it is like, and, you know, we talk about some of the piece, but violence interruption programs, for example, when I was growing up and I experienced, you know, real discernible, violence related to gun violence and things like that. The idea of calling the police was never in my mind. I just had to learn how to interact and navigate those situations in different ways. You know, and when one of those ways might have been calling on a family member that I know had a lot of ties and community, like a reputation for being known in the community and calling on him or, you know, different people in my family to help me navigate situations in a way that would lead to the least amount of harm done and that would help me in the situation. One of the things I imagine is like, what happens if there were entire teams in every city? And there are some, but what happens if there were entire teams in all cities and all places that were able to rapidly respond and provide support, resources, intervention? Because the model right now is something happens in this regard police come. No, a lot of times, especially you know, a lot of black communities, people are not going to call the police. And so, what would it look like to have teams like that? What would it look like to have teams? That center domestic violence support, intervention, prevention, because we know that when you know police show up, that it it often exacerbates issues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in large part, when you look at the domestic violence rates that that police officers, it's you know exorbitant, and so a part of it is it's it's I think it's structural, but it's also creating a context in which people who may have experience, who are survivors of domestic violence, and just folks who who, who want to engage in work around prevention, intervention, support. Can there can be teams, rapid response teams, you know, there can be, if a mental health crisis emergency is happening, a team of social workers and mental health providers that go out and say, okay, what's happening? The fundamental piece is having the resources to do all of this. And, you know, a lot of those resources can come from reallocation, but it also the state and federal levels from funding that goes towards policing, you know, but basically you can sort of say, let's start, let's dismantle. And let's, or you know, there's different phases. It can be phased out. There's different ways to th- sit with it and think about it. But what would it look like to start from scratch and say, let's think about every single incident that can happen that might be some sort of threat to somebody's safety and that or and then other situations that might be conflict that are not necessarily a direct threat to safety, but they're, they're, it's community conflict. And, you know, how do we think about what would it look like to have the best and most you know, the, 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 the best rapid response model that makes the most sense given the specific situation, right? And a part of this, everybody, you know, part of the critique is like, well, what happens if somebody is on the corner and they have a gun and they're shooting everything up? You don't want police. And, you know, for example, that might hit the drawing table. It was like, okay, so how do we respond if X, Y, and Z happens? You know, we live in this country, a lot of people have guns. What do we do? Okay, what does it look like to have a very small, specialized class of public servants that's able to respond in those situations, which actually happen very, very infrequently, but are able to respond to those situations in a way that prioritizes the least amount of harm done to everybody? Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, what does it look like to have that in that it's a very specialized team who goes out to those very infrequent situations that we know statistically and that can respond to that. So basically, it's, like, but so that's one way of thinking about it. But also, what this also means is transforming and decriminalizing okay. all of the things we understand and saying, you know what? How do we think and, and conceive of a world which responds to these different things that center safety and accountability and restoration as opposed to policing and prisons? So, a part of this picture is, it's not just about the police, it's also about the whole carceral continuum from police to people being in prison and conceiving of a world in which, you know, we can have, we can be safe and it doesn't look the way it is. Because if anybody who has ever been in a prison can tell you that, you know, that place as a restoration or whatever they conceive of it as is not what it produces. And, you know, there's different ways to engage in accountability, to get people who were harmed what, you know, they need to feel restored and transformed by the experience that does not look like criminalization, policing and, you know, incarceration. And also there might be certain situations where someone is engaging in continuous harm and there's processes that happen, but it doesn't stop. And it's not to say that there might not be somewhere, someplace where they can go and still live and be treated like humans but still given the opportunity and potential for for transforming as well, but recognizing that for whatever reason, they might be a harm to that community. And so it's not like a a pie in the sky idea. It's very, you know, very real, very grounded. And many folks have been engaged in different sources of work that we can draw on. And in other ways, we have to innovate. But what we know is that this model that exists right now is not working.
0: Justin, I want to thank you so much for all of that. I just want to, I guess, finish in the last minute or so and ask you if you're optimistic, given the level of, you know, incredible support for and the demands now to defund the police and start over. And people are starting to think about that. And given that, you know, presumably Biden is going to be the next president, you know, I, I, it's just asking you to speculate and give me your level of optimism that this kind of change is a possibility.
1: Yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm definitely optimistic. I think you know, different places, different cities, different locations. Every strategies are going to look different. What happens in Minneapolis might not look like in New York. So New York, it might be a much, much more difficult lift. But maybe one way of taking resources and power is to say, okay, in New York, you know, we're going to keep pushing for this. But in the meantime, as a strategy, we're also going to push demilitarization, and we're also going to start disarming cops. Right. So there's different ways to phase it. There's different ways to, you know, take resources, power um, and authority away. But I'm optimistic. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I've sort of been thinking like very intensely about invest, divest, diverting funds for, I would say, the past five years. And it also takes shape in how I conceive of my dissertation work and my research and I've never, this, I've never seen a moment like this. I mean, to the point where every, I, I can mention defunding to anybody and like most people have seen it, heard about it. They might not know what it is. You know, people are saying, well, what's abolished the police? What's defunding? It's, it's honestly, I think it's, it, this is a shift. And I think the, the, a priority needs to be to co- like continue this moment, keep pushing the piece around, you know, alternatives and, and, and investing in the, you know, communities. And, uh, you know, social spending, but also maintaining fundamentally that policing is illegitimate.
0: That's perfect. Thank you so much. And I really want to thank you for that contribution, Philip McHarris. And and tell the listeners to go out and read your articles in in The New York Times, May 30th, on No More Money for the Police, The Washington Post, but also just, you know, do a Google and you can read the rest of it. Philip McHarris, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio.
1: I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Suzy Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Vaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Suzy Wiseman.